My advice really is do your work, prepare, do not look to others, do your work. Hi, I'm Eric Ostro, host of Live the Lord Tell. For season three, we are focusing on the intersection of arts and advocacy. So many off-Broadway artists give back to their communities. This season, we are giving them the opportunity to speak about how and why they chose the causes they devote themselves to and how those causes help them make them the people and artists they are today. Good evening, everybody. My name is Eric Ostra, one of the hosts of Live at the Lortel. Welcome. I would like to bring my fabulous co-host on for the evening, Joy D. Michelle. Joy, come Hello, my me. love. Hello, how are my you? angel. I'm good. <laughs> how are you? I'm very you know, excited for tonight. You know how I am. I'm excited. You know. I know. <laughs> me too. I can see it. I can see it bubbling up. Elizabeth Marvel has won four Obie Awards, a Drama Desk, and has been nominated for two Lortel Awards for her work off-Broadway. Of her numerous Broadway roles, she is best known for her portrayal of Brooke Wyeth in other desert cities. Marvel was last seen in Hellstrom for Hulu, as well as News of the World for Universal, Unbelievable for Netflix, Homeland for Showtime, and House of Cards for Netflix again. Marvel is a graduate of the Juilliard School. Marvel is a champion for the National Alliance on Mental Illness and Physicians for Reproductive Health. Ladies and gentlemen, one of my acting idols, Elizabeth Marvel. <laughs> Hi. Hi. You're too kind. You're Don't too blush. Kind. It's okay. You're adorable Welcome. when you blush. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Joy and I are so honored to have yes. you. Yes. Well. The honor's all mine. I'm you very excited. You are an artist that has been working for, and I know Ever. I haven't told you when I say this. Forever. For, <laughs> for a long time, and you still look incredible. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you. God bless you. I don't know who your dermatologist <laughs> is, but she's great. <laughs> Let's just start off by saying, how have you been? How are you? I mean, we've been through two years of freaking hell. How have you been, and how have you kept your artistry and your art alive, especially in the first year? Great questions. Um, I'm well, thank you for asking. My family's well, I'm well. We were incredibly fortunate that we did not get sick and mm -hmm. we have had our health through this time. And my husband and son and I have been together through this time. I was incredibly fortunate as well to have my family unit with me. And as you mentioned, I did this TV show called Hellstrom that filmed in Vancouver. So I was away in Vancouver for about six months, right up until the shutdown, doing this crazy superhero show, which was which was really fun, but bananas. And Marvel uh, for Marvel. Finally. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> finally, uh, at long last. So I was shooting, and you know, I was talking to my husband the remarkable actor, Bill Camp, as you asked after. And I was in my trailer my very last day, which was the 15th of March. And he said, you know, I think they're going to shut down the city. I think the border might start closing. You should come home. And so I just went to the producers and kind of, you know, I threw my toys a little bit and said, I, I got to go home. I got to go home. I cannot be <laughs> stuck in 
Canada for mm-hmm. <laughs> another six months. At that time, we didn't know. So I came home and we got in the car and we drove to his sister who runs a this incredible farm estate in Vermont. And we walked away for a year and we lived on a farm in Vermont, the three of us. And, you know, you just never know what life is going to do or what it's going to be. <laughs> you just have to keep showing up for it. So we found ourselves in Vermont just being human beings. And we all got into long distance cold water swimming <laughs> and <laughs> like really into it. And we just, spent time together because, you know, in this profession, I imagine for everyone, the great luxury in our lives is time. What that's like, that is the gold that we work for is to have time. And suddenly we had time together. And we also, our son is 15 and these years are precious. They're precious. It's been kind of an amazing time during a a remarkably difficult period for the world. Did you have any amazing uh, discoveries or any things that you're going, oh, I'm going to do this differently with this time out that we had globally? Absolutely. My mind has shifted considerably. You know, right the year before the pandemic, we went to Japan. And something that I took away from that time in Japan was, I don't know if you've been, but when you go to the country culturally, the people there do one thing at a time. They do one thing all the way to the end, complete the task, and then do the next thing. So you can't like say, okay, I need this, and then I need you to do that. And you know, if you're drinking a cup of coffee, you finish the coffee, you drink the coffee. That's the experience you have. You complete that, and then you do something, you know, and it was so moving to me. It really affected me. And I found during the pandemic, I was able to do that, to complete the task, as it were, sort mm-hmm. of with all things. And I got back into ceramics, which is a lovely thing that I do for myself and, you know, got more into, because um, I started as a visual artist and I was able to find my way back to that because, again, the great luxury of time. You know, we get on this hamster wheel, especially in this city, especially in this business. You know, our time is not our own. That's what people buy from us. That's what they pay us for is our time. And then they can use it and abuse it as they see fit. (laughs) What's your medium? My medium? Um, You know, honestly, I love to draw. I love ceramics. I went to school to study metal and fiber and ceramics. So textiles was my thing, but I've been taking life drawing classes since I was six. So I want to go back a little bit about what you said about the way they live their life in Japan and how you kind of start something and then finish it. But, you know, as artists and actors, it's a very difficult thing to do because you're working on Homeland and then you're getting a script (laughs) the next week for... Yeah, you know this new Marvel series. Tell me yeah. and and our listeners really your processes, how you start and finish something, or how you juggle all this stuff. You know, that's the thing. That was the beauty of the the great pause or the rapture, as some of my friends call it. <laughs> that we all walked through the <laughs> years is that I didn't have to juggle for a change, and you know, normally. 
I do. I, I am right now. I just, I've been, since it became safe again to fly, I guess it is now. It's so confusing. But I was doing one show in LA and one show in Austin and kind of hopping between and then coming home and then the play. And I had to let go of that <laughs> concept of completing the task and just doing the task at hand. Mm. That's what I do a lot of the time is what is in front of me? What is here today? What do I need to do today? And then doing that to the best of my ability. Before we forget about it, you know, you and your husband recently did O'Neill's Long Day's Journey. Long Day's Journey. And I would love to talk about your experience working on this play. Obviously, I mean, I've been with my husband for almost 29 years. You've been with Bill for such a long time. He's not an actor, so I, I wouldn't want to do this play with him. But I'm wondering what that was like, the dynamic there and and doing the play with someone you've been with for so long and such an incredible actor he is himself. I'm just interested about the process and the work on it. And now they're making it audible so you can actually listen to it, which I think is, mm-hmm. is fascinating. Mm-hmm. But I'm fascinated by the play. I'm fascinated mm-hmm. about Mary and your process of, well, of getting I, I, to where you wanted to get. I'm so happy to talk about it because this play, this production of Long Day's Journey is something that I'm extremely passionate about and has been a labor of love for me that I've been working on for a long time. So I started about five years ago to work on the text And I had this idea, because I've seen the play, I'm a huge O'Neill freak. And I've seen the play, I think, 10 physical productions of the play over the course of my lifetime. Basically, anytime it's happening in the Eastern seaboard, I see it. And I say this with the utmost respect of all the brilliant performers and performances I've seen of it. But every time I've experienced the play, I've seen Mary being played like a codependent and not an addict. She's always very nervous and very anxious and trying to placate everyone instead of being the monster at the center saying, what the fuck's Mm -hmm. wrong with my hair? Are you looking at my fucking hair? Is that what you're looking at? Mm -hmm. Which is the truth of the addict. And I felt the need for such a long time to, to do this play because understanding what opioid addiction does and understanding that dynamic in a family and making her the center of the storm that holds this family hostage, that they aren't leaving her. You know, it's, it's what Tyrone says to her, you know, you're leaving us, Mary. We're not leaving you. You're leaving us. And it's always so delicate and polite. And it's not. Addiction is rough. It's rough. And it's cruel. And it's ugly. And I really wanted to dig into that. And then during the pandemic, with the massive twin crisis of COVID and then the opioid crisis and the amount of people we lost, 20% more deaths of any year happened during the pandemic due to opioid deaths. And, you know, that's also caused by the isolation during the pandemic, but also what was happening to families, which is much like the Tyrones, that Mm. that we were all locked in a house together. And some of us had serious addiction issues that suddenly were being uncovered because 
we were all locked in a house together, you know. And the the, so, lo- the loneliness of it. And the loneliness uh, and the shame yeah. and the, you know, and shame. the love, the love. I mean, that's another thing that a lot of people who saw our production of it talked about how much they loved each other. And, you know, just because you have a drug problem doesn't mean you don't love people or people don't love you. Mm-hmm. I mean, quite, quite the opposite. So anyway, so I had been working on this cut and thinking about this play for quite a while. And I had enlisted my husband several times to workshop it with me, which we had done over the years. And my husband, you know, I'm, I'm just ridiculously fortunate to live with, you know, my favorite actor. And one, I think just the greatest. And fortunately, he was really interested in my idea and supported it. And at the start of the pandemic, my sort of creative pimp, I call him, who's Jim Nicola. (laughs) He's the guy that always hooks me up with all of my collaborators and has over the years. You know, he always leads me where I need to go with who I need to work with. He told me I should, because I was like, I need to find a director to work with. And I have a couple of things because I'm always chewing on ideas for plays. And uh, he said, you should talk to Robert O'Hara. So he connected us and we started talking. And eventually it led us to a conversation about long days. And then, you know, he was like, fuck, during this pandemic, you know, it should be a, a COVID production. We should do it right here, right now. And I said, yeah, exactly. It's right here, right now. And so then, you know, we both agreed that Atu Blakes and Wood should be Edmund, that he's a dream Mm -hmm. Edmund. Uh, And I've been a massive fan of his for a while and was over the moon that he wanted to work with us. And and then we got lucky meeting Jason and, and, you know, we made the play and it was an incredible experience. Because doing this play, yes, we're not where we were a year or a year and a half ago, but still, it's a big deal to ask people to go into a theater and sit shoulder to shoulder. And Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, we weren't asking them for four hours, (laughs) which is another reality of, you know, another reason why we felt we wanted to shape this production and give it that velocity and intensity and not do a traditional production. And we got incredibly lucky as well that the estate allowed us to do this experiment with the text. That was a big trust fall on their part. And I am eternally grateful to the O'Neill estate for allowing us to do that because they understood that it was not out of any disrespect for the text, that it was totally honoring it. It was just an experiment, a sort of experience that we wanted to explore. They got it and actually loved it. They loved it. So I was very happy about that. Which but, is incredible. But I mean, it, it. just to be more specific about, to our listeners about what you're talking about is you cut the text. So yeah. it was, I mean, it's usually what, a three and a half hour? It's about four, four, usually hours. clocks in around four. four yeah, right? and we were, we were one. hundred minutes, hundred minutes. Uh, we were like, yeah, we were, Give or take, give or take five or 10. <laughs> <laughs> Depending but on your yeah. way, right? Yeah, I would say exactly. Right. I would say about that. 
Uh, now, did you pitch the idea to them and then they were a part of the process of cutting it? Or did you, once you got the permission to do it, you had the creative freedom to do what you wanted? We had so much creative freedom. What they said is you can cut, you can't add. And we were mm. like, great, no problem. Got it. And that's what we did. You know, I sort of had a cut version. And then when we started rehearsal, we all had the text and then we went from there as a company and sort of shaped it together to get to where it finally got. Because it's music, you know, you're just, you're writing music, you're making music. And so we, we did that together. And I, I got so lucky with this company of actors because they were gorgeous. They were unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And it was really intense work. I can only speak for myself because my Mary got very high during the play and I had to be in a state of being high, which is a very tricky, very delicate <laughs> thing. And, you know, same with the guys working with alcoholism mm -hmm. and, you know, it, it just, it takes such a, a sense of trust and listening and concentration and availability because you can't set anything, you know, you can't, repeat that shit. You've got to be in a sort of state of free jazz every mm. night. And so it was awesome mm. working with these artists. And, you know, my husband, he's just so awesome. We've worked together a lot, actually. When we were younger people, we did a bunch of plays in the city. And then we've done films together since we got a little older and became parents. But this is the first play we've done together in quite a while. Wow. And you know, I've known my husband since I was 15 years old, <laughs> a really long time. Wow. And, but there's nothing, there's nothing more wonderful than being on a stage and looking at someone you've known your entire adult life. I mean, it's just so, it makes everything so easy because it's all there. You know, you don't mm. have to do anything. It was also, it also, you know, the Tyrones, they love each other and they're very loving even through their their pain and damage. Um, they're very loving. We, we get asked a lot to do Virginia Woolf and you know, who wouldn't want to do it, but I don't want to do that with my husband. I don't want to say those things every night. I just don't want to say those things because you know, the body doesn't know you're lying. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the brain does, but the body I love, doesn't. I love so, that. Tell me about the, uh, I'm so fascinated about, I think you are a, uh, you are so, you're a goddess, I think, when it comes to impediment work. <laughs> Where do you start with somebody like Mary and the drugs? And you said getting high, you know, on stage and, and you're Mary, you know, you really focused in on the addiction part and the um, opioid part. Can you tell me where you started and where you found it or where well, you think you found it? Sure, sure. I started with the text. I found it in the text. I just followed exactly uh, when she leaves. I followed uh, uh, what uh, everyone uh, says about her, you know, and it's all very clear in the text exactly what she's yeah. doing. We just chose to keep me on stage upstairs so you could see me cook and shoot and, you know, do everything. It's all there. It's all described in the, in the play. So that's where I started. And then, you know, I uh, have a lot of knowledge about 
drug addiction and drug use. And I also live in a city surrounded by drug addiction and drug use. So you don't have to go far to sit on a park bench and watch Mm -hmm. that, you know, something that at the end of the play, you know, I would do a full heroin nod, like all the way down to the ground. And it's something that I see at least, you know, once or twice a week of people doing like incredible yoga moves and you don't know how they Mm -hmm. how they defy gravity but they always get back up and you know so I was very interested so physically I kind of did a lot of choreography because it was very important that my body tell the truth of what was happening I really believe that the body doesn't know the difference between imagined and real trauma so what did you do as a de-rolling process to disconnect it to break that cord Mm-hmm. A couple of things. One thing that's going to sound totally bananas, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. I've never been a big, you know, oh, I'm going to dive into the character and it's me. And, you know, I, I definitely try to wear the work pretty loosely. You know, I show up and I do my job and I'm like a plumber and I've got my skills and my bag of tools and I go to work. But, you know, it's, sometimes dangerous to be so cavalier and especially when you are repeating things and as you say the body doesn't know pretend trauma from real trauma and for instance you had mentioned Hedda Gabler and in that play I cracked three ribs I knocked a tooth out like I bled almost every night on stage like I had the shit kicked out of me on that play and often have in plays (laughs) like I've broken a lot of bones on stage I've you know So that being said, my body is traumatized and like this. And I had a very wise person a long time ago make the suggestion, which really is just ritual, to before I go on stage, to put on piece by piece my hand, my arm, my chest, my legs, uh, invisible armor, very thin invisible armor. And to put it on piece by piece. And then when I come off at the end of the play, very piece by piece, take it off again. And that's just a little psychological ritual that I do. (laughs) And it helps me. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Well, everybody, I mean, everybody has their own ritual and what they do. And and I love that. And we're talking about Hedda Gabler. I mean, Hedda Gabler catapulted you to a place, obviously, you've been working for years before, but Hedda Gabler was, you know, raves everywhere, people standing in line for hours to get tickets. <laughs> I mean, it was it was quite a production. And the director, Ivan Van Ho, who, who, you, who you've worked with quite a few times, yeah, with Streetcar Named Desire first and then this, what was that experience like about you were, you were a working actor and then all of a sudden... You were here working and then, boom. I'm interested in in what that was like. Well, you know, it's funny. I think it's all, I didn't feel any different. I've always felt the same. Like I just work. I just truck along and I just work. So I've never felt any, I was very fortunate to start working right out of school and I'm still working. (laughs) That's really, that's been my experience, you know. The thing with Evo that 
and is so wonderful because we're in constant conversation because he's, you know, one of my life creative collaborator people and my friend. Evo helped me feel um, good and appropriate about how I like to work, I guess. <laughs> Until I started working with Evo, I always had a certain amount of struggle with the process because like, I hate sitting at a table. I hate sitting at a table. I, when I start rehearsal, I want to get up. I'm off book day one and I want to just start work because in American theater, we have five minutes to make a play. We have five minutes before they're charging people to come in the door. And if people are paying their money, then I better be doing a good fucking show for those people. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to put out some bullshit if they're paying money. And, and also because time is the great luxury. If they're giving yeah. me their time, yeah. I better handle it responsibly. So yeah. anyway, I like to get up. I like to have everyone off book. And, you know, he also really helped me let go of any embarrassment or shame or limitation as far as just doing anything in the room, you know, throwing all the paint at the wall. Mm-hmm. And also that there's no, cause I, I struggled. I remember at Juilliard, I was so fucked up in acting class. Acting class was not good for me. I, did, I was not great <laughs> because I never understood this idea of arcs and, you know, I, I don't know. It just never made sense to me because I don't, I, I'm wildly erratic. You know, I'll be going a mile a minute and then I stop, I'll start screaming, I'll, you know, laugh. I never know and I don't think we know. So mapping shit has never made sense to me. Mm-hmm. And he's definitely uh, in agreement. I just felt like I had finally arrived with someone. It's like when I was little, I used to, lie in my yard with all my flash. I, we, I would take all the flashlights in the house and line them up along my body to signal to the UFOs to come get me because I knew I was not <laughs> from this planet. I was like, I knew I wasn't from this planet. And so when I met him, I was like, Oh, another alien. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you. Another person understands. Yeah. Wow. I, love I that. mean, so what you, what, what you're saying is, I mean, you never, in one place that everything is so erratic that it's just moment to moment. Yeah. Whatever, whatever comes at you well, will be something on Tuesday, but it could be something different on Thursday. Is that? Yes. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. But you know, it's sort of, I always compare everything I do to music. Music is the form with which I can sort of best describe what we do. Because it's like, I'm also incredibly disciplined. If I'm doing a play, I read the play every day while I'm working on it. I read it start to finish every day before I go do the play. And twice if I have two shows. And I do a full vocal warm-up and I do a full physical warm-up and, you know, I walk through the play in my mind. So it's it's not like, oh, whatever happens, you know, I I play my scales. Like I do my shit. I work hard and then I'm ready. Just like a musician. If you've warmed up, if you've done all your scales and you've been practicing, then you can just play. What advice do you have for actors that work with another actor that is rigid and they do need it to be the same all the time? 
and you want to be in the moment. What do you? <laughs> that is very hard. That is very hard. And I have worked with that. And what I've found, if you're lucky, you'll be able to have a good creative dialogue. And I think the key is to get your partner to trust you. Because once they know, like, once I've been able to have my partner understand, like, I'm not going to fuck with them. I'm never going to fuck them up. I'm never going to do something that's going to throw them. I'm always going to be in their world with them. But I may be, you know, I don't know, walking around doing something. It'll be on my lines. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm Mm -hmm. not going to fuck with them. And I think once we can cross that Rubicon together, it's good. So it is possible because I've had that experience actually multiple times. And sometimes it's been great because it's like they're the center and I'm kind of flying around them, you know. And the other times? There have been times when it's been very difficult. (laughs) There have been times. There have been times. I won't name any names. No, of course not. But what do you, what do you, that's a very tough line to cross. And it's a very, that's a tough situation to deal with. What, what is your advice for young actors when something like that happens? My advice really is, you know, do your work, prepare, do not look to others, do your work, because more often than not, you're going to be left to do your work. You're not going to have a director to help you. You may not have your fellow actor to help you. When it's good, you get all of it or you get one of those things. And that's awesome. But do your work. Be ready for whatever comes. And then, you know, try to create a trusting dialogue with your fellow actors. Because also, you know, if you're lucky, you get a great director. If you're lucky, but they will leave and you will be with your company. You know, the, the directors don't, don't stay. So it's your fellow actors that you've got to create that relationship with. And that's on you. So when you, you like to come to it with your off book, yeah. ready to, to rock and roll. Yeah. And in that creative freedom, about what point do you start going, okay, I am going to start locking in certain thoughts and ideas, even though you're going to stay loose and fluid, you know, like, like a musician with being in the moment, but there's certain things that you start going, this is what I'm doing. Do you, do you feel yourself getting there? Like maybe the third weekend or the second weekend? You know, it really changes project to project. It depends on how the director works. If they work, it depends on the kind of play, you know, if it's Shakespeare, it's definitely a different ball game than if it's a more contemporary piece of text it also depends on how much time we have to rehearse Mm -hmm. you know some things i don't find i don't map until closing week yes other you know (laughs) other things like i kind of have a map going in so it just depends yeah so discovery is whenever discovery is up until yeah. it opens. <laughs> yeah, that's well. Yeah, because that's mm-hmm. that's life, right? That's and we're just sort of a reflection of life. That's what we do is just reflect life, and life is erratic and ever changing. So you know that was a great thing that I learned from Austin Pendleton. I remember I was coming mm-hmm. off um, doing the Steve Tessage play, where and I was dealing with a lot of severe anxiety 
a lot of mental health stuff, panic attacks, just really struggling. And I got to the point where I didn't think I could go on stage anymore and almost missed a performance. But I was doing this play, God, the Steve Tessich play. And I remember Harris Eulin was playing my father. And I was under, uh, yeah, wonderful actor, wonderful man. And I was backstage and I was having a full on panic attack, like couldn't breathe, thought I was dying. And I sort of curled up on the floor under my dressing table. And he physically like dragged me out of there, like dragged me out and pushed me on stage. And Mm. I don't remember like what happened, but I finished the act And that night I was like, and he said, I just, I knew if you didn't go back out, you never would. Mm. And you just need to go back out. It's okay. (laughs) You know? uh, That's true. So so that was amazing. And then after that, I was doing a play, this new, at the time, this new Mike Weller play called 50 Words that Austin Pendleton directed me and Norbert Leo Butts in. And I was telling Austin, you know, I'm, I'm really scared because it was also a very deeply emotional, really tough play to do. And Norbert and I had to really, really trust each other. And I was struggling and and Austin was like, you can do anything on a stage. An audience will believe anything. Like they don't know any differently. So if you suddenly freak out and need to go leave stage to get a glass of water and come back in drinking a glass of water, they won't know any different. Mm -hmm. So don't worry. There's no wrong. Like whatever it is, whatever is happening is what is happening. And it's always cool. And that like blew my mind. That changed my life as far as working. And now I just really dig that of like whatever it is, is what it is. Coming into that knowledge of how to manage the anxiety and knowing that mental health is really important for human beings, particularly creative human beings, right? Yes. Is, what was the, the connection for you to get involved with the National Alliance of Mental Illness? With NAMI? Yes. A lot of it is because of my own issues with anxiety, depression, a lot of people in my life having a lot of mental health issues. And also because uh, so much addiction is co-occurs with mental health issues. And I do a lot of work as well around opioid addiction, alcohol addiction, and support. And I've found that NAMI is a remarkable organization that provides advocacy and education and support, not only for the individual, but for the family. And they also work with communities all over the country. You know, Mm -hmm. they have a presence nationwide. And I have always found them, whenever I've recommended people for, you know, reached out for help and support for others, it's always been supplied. They're a great, great organization. Yeah, I was doing some reading up about it. And it's interesting, you know, there's a lots of of help out there and if you if any of our listeners are 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 needing help or need to reach out to something nami is a a good place to start because they will help you get on your way i mean it's terrifying for people 
who are addicts and alcoholics to take that first step and walk into that AA room or that NA room. But mm-hmm. NAMI is, um, I was just reading all about it today. I found it fascinating. They will literally help you get to, get to your first move. Yeah, and, and there's already a whole big support system in place mm-hmm. because of the organization. Yeah. So, yeah, if someone does reach out to NAMI, whether it be, you know, my I focus more on addiction and mental health, but all mental health, they will support and help. And if you have a loved one, they also will support and help you to help your loved one or to help yourself. Because mental health issues and addiction issues are universal. They affect every class, race, creed equally. And they affect everybody in your life, your family, yes. your friends, your, the people you work with as an actor, the people you're on stage with, backstage with. I mean, it affects everyone around you. Mm-hmm. And uh, NAMI does some incredible work. What about uh, physicians for reproductive health? Well, that's, uh, that's a whole nother group. And they are amazing. It's a group of doctors that use their training and their expertise to champion, advocate, educate around reproductive health. Because abortion in particular, which is not the only part of reproductive health, but has become a politicized part of reproductive health. Reproductive health in general has become politicized, which is very frustrating to me and to many doctors that I know this, this group, it's a group of physicians and I fundraise for them. I do their, you know, their galas I've hosted and things like that. But these people are unbelievable, unbelievable. You know, they, they have to take their kids to school in flak jackets. It's incredible what these people are doing to provide services. And I think there are so many misunderstandings in our country, and it, it's healthcare that has become politicized. And the thing is that most women, I, I think something, I don't know the exact statistics, but I, I think it's something like 60 to 70% of all women that seek abortions already have one to two children. So it's not a story about, you know, teenage kids making bad choices and, you know, education. It's usually about mothers wanting to be the best mothers they can be to the children they have mm-hmm. and making decisions with their partners or with their families to figure out how they can financially handle what is happening in their lives. But it's also about family planning and education and birth control. So it's, it's not just about abortion. It's not just about getting people birth control. It's about talking about what is right for their individual family and reproductive health in general. I mean, you know, it's also about get a mammogram, you know, <laughs> things like that. So it all sits under this umbrella of That's right. what I was looking at it today. How can people get involved with both of these I can tell you. Um, NAMI, we've, been, we've been putting it up on the up on the screen, so you don't have to say it. Awesome. So, yeah. There is a helpline if anyone needs help, 
or know someone who needs help, I have a phone number. The NAMI helpline is 800-273-TALK. 800-273-TALK. There's a lot of great volunteers on that helpline to uh, help. That's amazing. You are an incredible artist, and you have aligned yourself with these two organizations. Do you find that as an advocate for these organizations that you have a greater sense of purpose when you are going about doing your work? Or what is it, what is it doing for you also personally to have work outside of being an artist for people who are thinking, for young people who are out there sure. thinking about how can they get involved and what should they get involved in? Sure. You know, there's nothing better as an artist than when you can be of service by doing your art or because of what you do as an artist, you can be of service. Something that was so meaningful to me doing Long Day's Journey and Tonight was that was another big impulse for that production was to be of service, to help people dealing with those issues during this time. And I had so many people stop me after the play, you know, a lot of people in tears because they had been suffering through watching a loved one decline during the pandemic because of addiction or they themselves struggling. And it is such a, you know, it is everything when you can do service work. Uh, But certainly when you can combine it with your art, it's wonderful. But Because uh, our lives are so erratic, because our work is so self-involved, it's also just a better way to live, to look outward than constantly inward, to, you know, give than to take. You know, we should all be stewards of each other and this experience we're all sharing together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, look at what are our struggles? Where do we need help? Okay, so I struggle with anxiety. I've had struggles with addiction because I know that territory. I can speak from experience. So how can I open my heart and my hand to help my brothers and sisters on the planet with me? You know, and and these are ways that I can. And it makes my life a better life. It makes me a better parent. It makes me just, you know, I can look at myself in the mirror in the morning. For me, it's about doing service and showing up. Me myself, I was lucky enough to see one of the one of the shows, and you know it it just kept reminding me to keep showing up and to keep doing service because I certainly have struggled myself. You know, it's uh, it's a slippery slope, and during the pandemic, you know, you wanna you wanna pack it up and escape. Sure, it's not stopping. You know, the we it, no. you, it's a really really mm-hmm. rough time. It's mm-hmm. a rough time, but. It's such a good thing to process life in real time mm-hmm. instead of mm-hmm. postponing it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, Because yeah. <laughs> it's going to come for you one way yeah. or the other. Yeah, absolutely It right. will come due. <laughs> so in this incredible career that you've had, you've been one of the few lucky ones to be consistently working through so many different changes, right? Yeah. 
Now that we have this awareness that's happening around consent and boundaries, and this is a whole new conversation that's being had for women. Yes. What are your thoughts and feelings about that? (laughs) How much time do you got? (laughs) Lots. (laughs) (laughs) It's so, you know, it's, that's such a fascinating and complicated question. And I, I, I mean, I'd love to hear all you have to say about it. I can only speak for myself. And something that I'm so lucky about is I have always been a character actor. I have not built my career wearing a bikini. That just hasn't been my road. But I have friends whose road that has been. And the amount of shit they've had to eat is mind-blowing. <laughs> but, you know, a few years ago when the Me Too movement really started to change the conversation, it was so radical for me because I've always considered myself a a serious feminist and very engaged. And I really had to take a long, close look at myself and realize, oh my God, I can't believe how much I've co-signed my entire career, how many jokes I've laughed at, how many comments I've made, how much shit I've eaten, like bowl after bowl of shit I've just taken because... I wanted to be a part of, I wanted to be in the room. I wanted the job and I can take it. I don't give a shit. I can take it. You know, finally unclenching and breathing the truth in and realizing, oh my God, I have been so uncomfortable and seen and heard and felt so much. And I think, you know, oh, I'm, I, no one, you know, no one really did anything. And you start looking at it and you're like, oh, no, they did. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. <laughs> mm-hmm. I can't think of one. I don't know a woman that doesn't have a story. You know, I don't know one. I think it's fucking great. I think it's fucking great is what I think. I think it's awesome. I think it's beautiful. I think it's long overdue that conversations are happening, certainly in a creative space, for God's sake. You know, I can't speak to corporate or other spaces, but in creative spaces, it's about time we have collective agreements about how we're going to treat each other, Mm -hmm. you know, as we venture into these things. It's about time we have intimacy consultants. It's about time. So I say that's great. I'm an actor and I'm also an intimacy director. Uh And so it's so interesting because I was just in rehearsal for a show and then the understudy is going to step in, right? So we had to get her in there and get her prepared. Mm -hmm. And the, the young man who's the lead in it, he's young, attractive, and excited to please, right? So... He wants to get it right. And in his desire to get it right, I said, you know what? I'm going to step back and I'm going to let you explain some of these things to her. And I've got you, you know, I'm your net. And so if you have difficulty, because he's like, I I don't want to be me too. That's his... That's his big thing. Like he he says it all the time in rehearsal. He's like, I don't want to be me too. I don't want to be me too. And I get it. I get it. But the interesting thing is, is when I explained to him that this is not just you doing something for the protection of a woman. This is also you doing something for your own protection. Mm-hmm. You too could be me too. It was like, 
a light bulb went off for him and a different kind of commitment happened. Sure. And, he, and then he welled up and he like almost got emotional yeah. because it, I realized that everybody's vulnerable right now. Yeah. Everybody yeah. is afraid of what I say, what I do, how I respond, and nobody really feels protected. So uh-huh. him as a man, he felt like he he didn't have any protection. That's fascinating. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, yeah. it's very moving. Yeah. And very, so. very true. We all I mean, want to be protected right now. <laughs> yeah, we do. We do, but we also all need to fucking feel the vulnerability, don't we? We mm-hmm. all do. It's about time we all really feel it and look at it because that's life, you know, <laughs> that's what it is. It's a, it's a profoundly vulnerable, overwhelming, tough, scary, intense experience. Mm-hmm. I want to ask a question. You got the opportunity to work with Glenda Jackson. Yes, I did. Uh, in King Lear. Mm-hmm. And you got to play the part that, you know, everybody, the part that everybody would want to play. Um, and I was reading a lot about what you were saying about your rehearsal process and your ability to just sit there and listen for about 30 minutes which I found Uh fascinating (laughs) Um, just the power of listening Mm. can you talk a little bit about that experience and what that magic was like to work with Glenda Jackson Mm. yeah well you know I basically, every time I say I'm quitting the theater, no more, which is pretty regular for me. You can ask my husband or my agent. I'm always never going to do a play again. Okay, ever. Shakespeare is the thing. That's the one that it basically, you know, anytime, anywhere, I'll do it. I can't help it. I love it so much. So, you know, there's just the fact of King Lear, period. So listening to King Lear every day is just, you know, that's paradise for me. But certainly listening to Glenda speak it Mm. is just divine. You know, I mean, she's, there's no one like her. That's for sure. There is no (laughs) one like Ms. Jackson. Um, (laughs) She chain smokes and does yoga and she's 500 years old and, you know, just mops the floor with all of us. Mm -hmm. So she, you know, I would just every night say captain, my captain. And uh, (laughs) we would, you know, before the fourth act was always, we had these two stools backstage, offstage, and we'd sit together and we would discuss politics. She and I had an, an ongoing five month political dialogue, which was fascinating. Fascinating and such a pleasure. That was a huge highlight. I don't know if she ever knew my name. She would just call me, girl, hey, girl, (laughs) come here, girl. It's time for our talk, girl. Sit down. That sounds like a play in itself. I would pay to watch. (laughs) The two of you have this political conversation and you're only called girl. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it's just if you get lucky enough to be in the room with one of the greats, yeah. you, know, you just you just shut your mouth and you listen. Yeah. I, I want to end on this. It's a quote by somebody you've worked with a lot. And it says, she always wants to go further, go deeper, 
as if she wanted every day to break a world record in theatrical inventiveness, Mr. Van, <laughs> Mr. Van Ho said. The thing that Elizabeth can do with her body, her voice, her mind, lay open a wide field of great parts for her, from Lady Macbeth to the freshest character from today's youngest playwright. I think that says it all about you, Miss oh. Marvel. I'm a huge fan. We both are. And we are so honored that you shared an hour of your time with us and our listeners. Many of our listeners are, are young theater artists. They got an opportunity to get a little insight into your head and into your acting head and, and heart. So thank you. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. You are a joy. <laughs> Oh, and I'm, there's so much stuff I want to talk still. I, I mean, <laughs> don't forget, you guys, no, you have so much stuff right now on the dropout Netflix is on. and that's on so Hulu. There's, and Love and Death. Yep, I turn up like a bad penny, you know. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, I'll be there. Well, the don't Marvel series is is pretty incredible, and I'm not a Marvel person. <laughs> I'm a gay boy. I'm a gay boy from New York, but I watched this, and you're. <laughs> You you were pretty you were pretty terrifying and it was it was it was pretty great. Cool. So I love that side of you. So thank oh, you. Oh, thank you, thank you. I I thank so you. appreciate you guys also giving a space for advocacy. Yes, that's what this season's about, and it's awesome. We're very we're very proud of it. And that's our show. On Monday, April fourth, Joy and I will interview Kelly Gerard and Jalen Levingston. Kelly is an Obie winner and the founder of the Fire This Time Festival. Jaylin will direct the festival. Kelly was recently named director of new works at the legendary Apollo Theater in Harlem. And Jaylin will talk about his work with the Broadway Advocacy Coalition. Then on Monday, April 11th, Joy and I will interview Jaime Lozano. Born in Monterrey, Mexico, Jaime is an accomplished musician, composer, orchestrator and musical theater director considered by Lin-Manuel Miranda as the next big thing. We will talk to Jaime about Revolución Latina, an organization that empowers and unites the Latino community with full capacity to manage and expand our programs that inspire lives through the arts. This podcast is brought to you by the Lucia Lortel Theater. Live at the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer yours truly, and associate producer Jeffrey Schubart. Press is provided by Sin Gogolak, GoGo Public Relations. And special thanks to Nancy Hurwitz, Alana Canty Samuel, Mara Levinas, Carla Liriano, and Ellen Chan. Live at the Lortel sound engineer and mixer is Brian Falk at Abacus Entertainment. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>